0: the incomparable number 139 may 2013
1: welcome back to the incomparable podcast i'm your host jason snell and uh Tonight, we're convening an interesting collection of panelists to have, uh, for an interesting topic, I would say. We're going to talk about A Wrinkle in Time, the classic children's book, the first in what apparently is a series of five books on this subject, but I remember none of them but the first one and only read, I think, one of the others. But, uh, the, uh, news peg here, the thing that makes this extra relevant for today's audiences is that recently, Hope Larson, uh, created a graphic novel adaptation that I also am holding. I have each of them in one hand right now. Many of us remember this book from our childhood. In fact, the I am holding a 1978 del yearling edition of a wrinkle in time with the childlike handwriting of my wife on the inside from when she lived in hollywood california when she (laughs) was nine years old uh and i and then of course the new hope hope larson so we're going to talk about this book and who knows where it will take us my panelists to discuss this are lisa schmeiser you heard her laughing hi lisa
2: hi
1: it's good to have you here
2: it's nice to be here thank you
1: serenity caldwell is also here hi
2: hi jason
1: good to have you and uh his first time not not really appearing on the podcast but his first time as an actual panelist it is the author of the incomparable radio theater on the air and somebody who reads things apparently too because he's read this it's david lore hi hi glad to be here yeah it's good to have you a wriggle of time i remember this book very clearly from when i was a kid i i my copy didn't i think survive to my adult life i had a Uh, wind in the door, I think, that that I managed to keep for a long time and I always thought it was funny that I had the the seat, one of the sequels, and could never find my original. And then I thought I had found it, and it turns out that it was just the one that my my wife had brought to the to the marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like her name's on the inside. It's proof that it's not mine. But um, but and I have this memory of that yellow cover with the uh, the sort of centaur alien with a rainbow coming out of its back. And <laughs> this, this is
2: the copy I'm holding in my hand and now. Some flowers. <laughs> like they've, got, they've got the they've got the rainbow wings on the 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 centaur pegacorn thing yeah and then and then in the middle is the floating green it brain
1: oh i don't have that yeah that's the one i have no
2: yes it has the floating green it brain in the lower third the lower third of the book
1: wow spoilers and
2: then there's the uh <laughs> then there's the, the the rainbow pegacorn uh uh dude and then mine says the newberry award-winning classic Madeleine l'angle
1: yeah yeah that's wow yeah. that's we have slightly different editions my, i'm mm-hmm. not really happy with my rainbow um rainbow centaur person. Yeah. Uh, I actually like the rainbow centaurs in the Hope Larson adaptation mm-hmm. a little bit more because they mm-hmm. look like wings, whereas this is like...
2: This is like the painting on the side of a van in the 70s. Yeah, it's like
1: a <laughs> rainbow. They were stabbed in the back by a rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> and now there's a rainbow stuck in their back.
2: No, because you can just see... It's it's like a, it's like on a it, the, there'd be a purple van and you know there'd be like a dream catcher hanging from the window and this would be airbrushed onto one side of it and the people driving it would tumble out and they would smell like menthol. Right on, man! Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Far <laughs> it's out that more That's... spiritual unicorn. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sure.
2: Sure. More exalted. More in keeping with langle's uh aesthetics.
1: So I guess we should start by talking a little bit about about what your history is with this with this book, if you've got a, a fond childhood memory. Like I said, I remember reading it and the sequels and keeping it around and finding it very strange, but I, I didn't have um you know my my memory of the book the only one that I could remember you know is this first book and it's funny my memory of it is very specifically the the beginning more although at the so thinking about it, I kept thinking I only remember the first couple of chapters and then there's this whole other plot that happens after that and then in reading it back, the part that I remember as the very beginning of the book it's like more than half the book. Mm -hmm. Because this book is a very strangely paced. And I I think we'll probably get to that where things that I think of as like sort of set up and meeting the characters, you realize you're more than halfway through the book and you're still just sort of meeting the characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so let's uh, what what are um, what are your histories with it? Let's start with Lisa.
2: I read the trilogy for the first time in fourth grade. Um, It was in our classroom library and I picked it up and brought it home over the weekend. And and uh, I think by that Tuesday, I had raided my allowance and gone back and bought my own trilogy and I used to have the little cardboard box that went around, um, the three books. So it was a gift set. I was very excited about it. Um, it would not be an exaggeration to say that, um, a wrinkle in time blew my mind. And, um, the thing that sticks with me to this day is toward the end of the book. When, um, let me find it. Da, 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 um, Mrs. watson talks about the sonnets um, it's oh on page, yeah, it's on page one seventy nine in my book. The human
1: contri- condition, in which humanity's life on this earth is described as a sonnet. Sonnet,
2: and what she explains mm. is that a sonnet only works when a son- and, and, and and I think one of the reasons it stuck is we were actually doing sonnets in class at the time too as a form of poetry. So, so the seed was there, but just the idea that within very strict parameters, you could you had limitless potential. To, to work up and within and to create something beautiful that somehow managed to jump outside those parameters while honoring them and being shaped by them. That was an idea I had never encountered. Because um, nobody in my... Because it's not like, you know you have these conversations with your parents over the dinner table and they explain to you now, honey, you know, if you set strict limits and discipline, what you can do is cultivate the mental base that you, like your parents aren't going to do that when you're eight or nine or 10 years old. And this was really the first time I was able to put together things like if I understand and learn the fundamentals of math or language or music or writing, once I figure out what those are, I can do anything I want with them. And the metaphor of create of of limitless creativity within very strict structure has been one that I have found to be incredibly useful throughout my entire oh, yeah. life. And I and I and I credit this to this book. So you know I can literally feel my brain the pathways of my brain shifting and moving around when I when I read through that the first time. And uh it's it's it was indelible. That said, I've still never been able to conceptualize a Tesseract. Like I just can't <laughs> It's a square, squared, and then squared again. Yeah. Even Meg Murray Mm. has to
1: think about it really hard and then go, oh, oh, I had it for a second. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, David, what's your uh, original uh, sort of history with this?
3: Well, uh, you know, my mother was a writer and she was also a theologian. So, you know, I kind of came at the books with, you know, a little bit of the religion going on at the same time because they're fairly religious. Um, And so, I mean, they were just always in the house. You know, as far back as I can remember, there was this one bookshelf that was Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Madeleine Lengel and Charles Williams. And and one day, my mother just took – she actually took Swiftly Tilting Planet, which was the third one, and took it off the shelf and said, here, try this. And I don't know why she gave it to me out of order, but
0: (laughs) –
3: whatever continuity and um, spoilers. spoilers. Mm-hmm. Well, and and of the last two that she wrote that are in that set, they actually, they're not chronologically the last two. It's really weird. Um, anyway. Uh, so, I mean, I, I had read them when I was, I think in second or third grade and it was the same kind of thing. It was sort of, Oh my God. You know, the, 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 uh, the, the thought, the thought of the sonnet and, and that, you know, you, you could create, you know, once you figured out the pattern, you were set for everything else. Right. And then I didn't read them for years and years and years. And so it was interesting to come back to them now and sort of fill in the blanks as I was going, cause I read the graphic novel first and I, and I was like, wait, that, where did she, what did she leave out there? And then I went back to the book and went, Oh yeah, I remember that. Um, was a little surreal
0: mm-hmm.
3: but uh but yeah it, it, it was sort of interesting again how much i remembered of the setup and how much i remembered of the the um the place setting for each uh each environment they go to right and i didn't okay. remember the details i didn't remember the quotes or the 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 very very faint theology that's in there serenity so what about you
4: This is a book I read very, very early on. When I was younger, um, my parents were musicians. They played at a a church every weekend. uh, And... Before the church service, they had to go in ridiculously early, 6.30, 7 in the morning, uh, to get everything set up and to start uh, start choir. And in the meantime, my mother would drop me off with uh, a friend, a, a mutual friend who also went to this church. Um, and her daughter, Kate, was the same age as me. And I think at this point we were probably 6 or 7, something like that. Maybe maybe closer to 10. I mean, we we basically hung out every Saturday for— five or six years and Kate and, um, and her mother were rabid book collectors and her mother worked for the LA times. So, uh, every week I was basically going over to Kate's and pulling off a different book from her shelf and, uh, taking it and hiding it in church. Um, and when, uh, when I accidentally picked up wrinkle in time, (laughs) it was one of those things where, uh, you you start reading it and you don't really realize that it's a book that's going to affect you as much as it does because it starts off very simply, um, but very truthfully. You know, I'm even even at nine or ten, uh, you can still it still resonates very deeply. The feeling of you know if you're a little bit stranger than everybody else or you're a little bit outside of the curve, um, you can really identify with Meg. You can identify with Charles Wallace, um, and there, there are a lot of these characters that really resonate. Um, even if you're not quite sure why they resonate, it's a, it's a book for me that, you know, when when I read it the first time, I just thought it was brilliant, and I went, I went back and I stole the rest of them from Katie and read through those up a storm, and then basically pestered my mother daily until uh, I could actually go to a bookstore and buy the set. Um, but, you know, when I look back on it, it's a weird, it's a, it's a book that I value very, it's a book that I value very highly. It's a, it's a quartet that I value very highly and that I've read these books over and over and over again, probably second to, you know, Little House on the Prairie or it's, it's just, it's a weird sort of thing. Um, this book resonates to me in images almost rather than uh, phrases, although it's funny enough reading through um, Hope Larson's graphic novel, which is just beautiful um, and visualizes the characters in such a fantastic way without actually taking away from your own imagination of what it looks like and what um, what Mrs. Who and Mrs. What's it all look like. Um, when reading the graphic novel it was I found it funny how many of those lines I actually could recall by heart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even though I, you know, if I, if I sat and picked up the book again, I I don't think I've read the book in 10 years now. Um, but there's so much of it that's laid so deep in my subconscious. Um, the sonnet lines are very funny, uh, to me because (laughs) that it's, it's so weird. It's that, that is a philosophy. That's like an underlying philosophy for my life. And I Mm -hmm. always, When I'm trying to coach or when I'm trying to – when I was directing people, I always used that sort of theorem with them being like, all right, well, we have the text and we have very strict structures for things like commedia dell'arte and theater. Mm -hmm. Um, But the whole beauty of structures like that is the freedom in which to play with them. And for some reason, Wrinkle in Time just broke that – yeah. I, I I didn't even connect it until you brought it up right now. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's funny. It's very, very funny and strange and magical.
1: So, uh, before we get any fur- further along here, I-, I wanted to at least give people who may not remember or haven't read it and yet are still listening uh, <laughs> an idea of what of what this what this book is about. And it, it is fascinating. One of the things you know, it's kind of far out. I mean, it, it is for a book with a rainbow centaur on the cover, you would expect it. But I, as a as a kid's book, it's kind of a gentle and yet also eventually really bizarre story. It's about a girl Meg Murray who is. As has been uh, mentioned here, she's kind of an outcast. She's um, her her um, she's from a family a very very intelligent family, and she's intelligent but um, doesn't get along well with other people in school and she has trouble in school, not because she's not smart, but because she's actually very smart and kind of bored and kind of doesn't get along with people. Um, and she's got a, a little brother, a very little brother, who's kind of a genius, a super genius, and also um, everybody thinks is stupid because he's different. And then she's got twin brothers who are um, maybe not as... who are bright and successful and socially adept, but you know not necessarily as brilliant as these other two are um her dad is missing who he works for the government and has gone off somewhere and they haven't seen him in ages um and they uh they meet uh <laughs> through a, a you know she also I should say she um whenever somebody uh, at school insults her brother she punches them <laughs> which is a nice touch um so she gets in trouble and she goes to the principal and the principal asks her to conform and she basically says um no I'm not going to do that Um, and then what happens is that her brilliant little brother, Charles Wallace says that he's been meeting this, uh, this, this mysterious woman and they go out into the, to this abandoned, like haunted house, basically like stereotypical haunted house, um, meet, uh, meet another kid from the school who's actually popular but it turns out is actually kind of faking he can get along with being popular but he's actually really bright and is sort of faking it to get to be popular um and they discover that charles wallace has been having conversations with three um mysterious women who are actually aliens or or even more cosmic creatures than that um and that their father has actually used a wrinkle in time or a tesseract to travel um across time and space to other planets where he is now being held captive in the in a universal battle of good versus evil and that 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 downloads very quickly (laughs) at some point in the middle of this book and then um and they're off on an adventure that takes them to, I'm going to say, four or five other planets eventually. And uh, and they meet up with... Uh they meet up with a big pulsating brain monster on a planet, and and Charles Wallace is is possessed and left behind. And they rescue her dad, and then she has to go back and save her brother. And that's basically my plot synopsis of A *Wrinkle in Time*. Did I did I leave anything out? I mean, it's it's not really about the plot, but it's a it's pretty crazy actually. When you try to, when you think about this is a kid's book, and it seems to be going off with like a journey of self discovery for Meg Murray, and suddenly they're like,
2: it's so intelligently paced though, because like you like you guys were saying earlier it takes forever to pick up speed since approximately the first third of the book is laying down the the foundation, the sense of place that the the Murray children call home, right? The, the, the village in which they're clearly the outcasts, their, their mother, who is actually, frankly, managing to have it all because she's this brilliant scientist who still cooks dinner on the Bunsen burners and is, is a single parent to four smart kids and holding it together. And, um, there are all these routines and rituals and she does this great job of fleshing out this world where they name that the dog's name is Fortinbras. and that that yeah. little detail tells you so much <laughs> about the um about the general tenor of, of the Murray home where where clearly the ethos is keep up and if you can't keep up, take notes.
0: Yep. Um <laughs> which but I love.
2: It and, and well, because cause, cause the, you know, just like and we should just spoiler horn. In the third book, when they find a snake, they name her Columbra, which is the Latin, which which is the, which is the Latin term for snake. And oh, it's a joke! Haha, uh-huh. isn't it funny? And, and, and so she builds out this rich, idiosyncratic world. They give each other liverwurst and cream cheese sandwiches as comfort food, mm-hmm. which is a detail that has always baffled me because that's just disgusting.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but what this does is, is if you're a kid, when you when you are a little kid you are still intensely self-centered and intensely local. And so if you're a small if you're if you're in elementary school who's reading this, what she does here is she basically she introduces the world at a pace that, that children can grasp using a frame of reference that children will immediately warm to. And then when she shifts gears and wham, you're you're hip hopping across the galaxy and getting these big lessons about evil and incorruptibility and, and so on and so forth, like the self-discovery a little kid's not going to see that the self-discovery goes hand in hand with the dramatic jumps in development, but that's actually, that that's a really uncanny parallel for what happens to children in adolescence and adulthood, is that you kind of tick along in your world and your world and then one day there's a big leap and, and things look different, but it's still the same world. And, and so I think this book is actually perfectly structured to mirror what happens to people through, between the ages of like 11 and 16.
1: So, so starting with the family, uh, and you made a really good point there, Lisa. This this book is, uh, you know, setting up this family that is proudly apart and different, and and how, and they're they're very different from the people who live all it, it, almost to this kind of ridiculous extreme. Where where um what is his name? Cal Calvin. Calvin. Yeah, Cal. His mm-hmm. his um. You know, his mother has like no teeth.
2: (laughs) Oh, it's heartbreaking. Right? Right? So, so
1: it's like these are very different people from the town that they're, that they're living in. Calvin
2: O'Keefe, yeah. Mm -hmm. and,
1: And, um, and that's great on one level because they're brilliant and, and have, you know, and mom is cooking stew out on a Bunsen burner while she's doing chemical experiments and things like that, but it has a cost because at school, conformity is actually what is being sought here, and I, I thought when I was reading it, no, when I was reading it at the beginning, I was like, oh, no wonder I love this book. This is, you know, because, because Meg is having a hard time fitting in, and it, you know, gets really frustrated, and, and I just, I was like, okay, I totally, I Identified with that um but it, it's so that that's one aspect of this is that it, this really interesting thing about this is a very interesting brilliant family and they don't fit they don't and it doesn't matter necessarily except to meg and presumably eventually to charles wallace because they don't they don't fit unlike the twins who just kind of right. slide along
2: that's kind of the twins peculiar genius though is is just like meg is an incredible mathematical genius and probably the one most in touch with um humanity's darker emotions especially when compared with uh charles wallace who is a really thinly veiled analog to the christ child um dennis and sandy have managed to figure out how to pass for lack of a better word early on
0: yes yeah
2: and and they're they're very skilled at passing and i think i i and and i've always felt like they kind of get short shrift in the first three books i haven't read the one in which they they star as it were but i've always felt they kind of get a short shrift because to grow up with the family that they had and then to make the deliberate decision that yes, we're going to be good at sports, we're going to manage to, to straddle the line between these two cultures that we we have to negotiate with at home and, and not home, and then they go into medicine and law, which are you know by virtue of the professions have this patina of respectability. It's it's intriguing to me that they pulled off that balancing act.
1: Yeah, I, I get, well. In this book, they they are they're not particularly. Well, they barely
4: are on screen. Yeah. Um, Many Waters is actually the book I read the most after Wrinkle and Time in terms of that, the quartet. Um, and that's actually a really fascinating book. It's a much more religious book mm-hmm. in some ways than the other three, or rather overtly religious because it deals with biblical times mm-hmm. and it deals with very, uh, very noticeable biblical characters. Um, so you, you know, the initial jump into the story can sometimes turn people away because oh it's heavy heavily christianity um but their reactions and their sort of working through the story of basically noah and the flood um gives them a really really interesting character background that you don't see in the other three books so i i mean i i really like that book even though i know it gets kind of a unfair unfair shrift and it's um it was published a lot later than the other three because it was published in between her second set of quartets uh that star um spoiler alert uh (laughs) meg and calvin's kid uh (laughs) so i haven't actually read any of those but um but many waters is quite good
1: Uh, so uh, when i was reading the here's what i did i read the graphic novel and then I went back and read the the book again, and when I was reading the graphic novel, I was thinking to myself was it was it this weird?" And the answer is yeah it, it was <laughs> um I found that out but but one of the things one of the things that I thought was was did I, obviously as a kid, I kind of missed the uh, or didn't notice or didn't you know just didn 't read on me both the there's a, a religious aspect of this that we need to talk about, and there's also this kind of you know this individualism message where i was thought oh is this going to is this going to turn out to be some sort of like coded and randian thing that i <laughs> didn't realize was awful when i was a kid and now i I'm like, oh my god and it's not but um but it is about there there's this whole thing about individualism in here and it, and you see it at the beginning and at the end and it's a strong thread throughout uh but before we get there i do want to talk about religion and, and get your your guys's take on it because um, lisa and renn both mentioned it and mm-hmm. david mentioned that his mom was a theologian so we're gonna- (laughs) to get into it here i am not a particularly religious person although i did go to sunday school and so i had a background uh, in that when i was a kid reading this for the first time what struck me about the religion in a wrinkle in time is that it's mentioned but it's not it's not that overt it's more i'd almost say it's almost more like the wallpaper of religion that it's it's just a thing that's part of the world and not uh You know, I I hate to say it, but these days you get this this real push and pull, whether it's either religious propaganda or it isn't it's either about science or it's about religion. It's about Mm -hmm. art or it's about religion, but everything is pitted against each other that, you know, literally you can't have something. If something's got religion in it, generally the feeling today is that that's, that's because it's propaganda. And in many cases, that's because it is propaganda. And this struck me as being something that like, there's that great scene where they, they ask about this. They say there's a struggle between, you know, darkness and light, which is just as easily star Wars as it is the Bible. Um, but they they say now, who do you think are the people who fought for the, for light? And one of the kids says Jesus. They're like, mm-hmm. yes. And I said, but also, and they list off a bunch of artists and scientists. And I thought, now see, <laughs> that's really interesting because it's not, it's not, uh, you know, hey, hey, kids, I'm enlisting you in the cause of good like Jesus you know he's fighting on this side and it's like no it's him and and uh Leonardo you know Leonardo and da Vinci mm-hmm. and, and, and and Shakespeare and Einstein right well, mm-hmm. yeah. and so i thought that was really interesting and there there there's a bible verse that Beng needs to remember later on and i mean it's definitely there and 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 the um the uh the the alien uh, horse people rainbow people are kind of angels and are referred to as such by cal at one point but it's not like they're angels it's more like how do i describe them to you i can't really think of it and it's like uh guardian angels they're kind of like that right it's not it just it it managed to use religious imagery and talk about religion as it was part of the world without seeming like it was super coded propaganda at least that's how i read it when i reread it kind of being wary about what i was going to find inside
4: yeah, it's almost like a step forward from C.S. Lewis's Narnia books in a way because <laughs>
1: it's it's the, it sits and, in the weird, yeah, yeah. you know. I, I, well, and that's an example where the Narnia books are actually, I think, much better coding for religious uh, parables than the um, his sci-fi books, which are mm-hmm. much more heavy-handed, I think. But go ahead. Yeah.
4: Well, no, I mean, Narnia, Narnia is very heavy-handed, but in a wonderfully lyrical sort of way mm-hmm. where it's never, you know, it's never so overt that anyone under the age of twelve is going to catch on, um, whereas wrinkle and time and its successors are very much, yes, religious religion is in this world, religion is part of this world, religion influences what is going on, but religion is not the end- all be-all, and religion works in concert with these other. You know, with science and with art, and there, there can there's they almost makes an argument that there can be no religion without science and art, and that they all they all must work together, or else the entire fabric of the universe falls apart. And you kind of get a little bit of that with it, in terms of you know, we're we've taken away everything for vast structure, and in this structure, there's no real religion, there's no real art, there's no real mm-hmm. science. It's just everybody, you know. Under this grip,
0: no indiv- um, no individualism. There's, there's
4: borders
2: without without creativity. It's the opposite exactly. of a sonnet, right? Yeah. The, the the point that Jason makes about um th- you know Jesus is somebody who changed the universe for the better, but scientists do and artists do as well. I grew up as a Catholic in the Bible Belt, and um I grew up in fact in the neighborhood where the Southern Baptist moms managed to um make the case to my parents that I should be sent to Southern Baptist Bible School during the summer so I so my soul could be saved. So um, oh nice. Well, it you know, it's, it, it, welcome to the Bible Belt, welcome to the South. And so to, to uh, again, to have the idea that there was more than one way to be a good person in the world and to do good towards the world, that was an idea that I needed to have expressed to me in legitimate ways as a child. And, and this book does a wonderful job of doing that. Um, I do wonder if it's more of a product of its time, because um, it was written during the early 1960s where religion wasn't seen so much as an us versus them thing as right. it is today exactly um it's much more gentle uh if, whereas if you take a look at some of her older works for example i'm also a fan of her meet the Austin's books and those are far more overtly religious and far more far more adamantly christian and I have noticed that as writers get older, they do tend to sink into whatever is going to give them comfort and validation. And it seems like Leinke kind of did that with her work. Whereas I think this is only the second book she ever wrote, and and so she's she's still figuring she's still finding her way as a voice. And she synthesized most of her major themes, but this is much more product if its of its time in the '60s, which is. There are a lot of different ways to, to create miracles and wonder. Jesus Christ is one way of doing it. Scientists who can help us find the truth about the universe or another way. Artists that can help us express that truth about the universe or another way. Philanthropists who can help us express kindness in the universe or another way. And I wish that was an idea that was more in play now. Yeah.
0: yeah. But because you read a lot of science <laughs> fiction
2: now, and a lot of what's come out in the last 10 to 15 years in popular science fiction, religions become the big bad bogeyman in a lot of books and um and
1: of course in in so much religious discussion mm-hmm. now science yeah. is the enemy right exactly right and, right. and ni- neither of those necessarily is uh you know me i'm always looking for a moderate path um the the, the neither of those is particularly constructive and yeah. you know not to get on a not to get on a totally bizarre cha- tangent and i'll do an episode <laughs> about this soon mm. but um you know babylon five one of those mm. tv shows from the 90s that i really loved uh written by an atheist joe michael straczynski
2: has extraordinarily nuanced takes on religion and how it shapes people's lives oh, yeah. and ethics. It's fantastic.
1: I believe won an award for the portrayal mm-hmm. of religion on television. It was like, yeah. Yeah, we can portray a future where there are aliens and people are in outer space and people, guess what, still have religions because that's going to happen because, you know, th- those aren't going to just disappear one day, yeah. despite what Gene Roddenberry <laughs> thinks. So <laughs> no. um, I, and I always so that was refreshing and I, I think it's too bad it, it, knowing that, that these books become more overtly religious over time. It's like, I, I really appreciated the fact that in this book it's part of the mix and it's relevant and it's and it's you know it's it's got some cultural signifiers to it it's like you know of course you know these verses from the bible because Mm -hmm. people know those things and then it's also got the the um you know, the fact is we're talking about a struggle between good and evil here, a universal Mm -hmm. struggle between good and evil. And it's kind of interesting to frame that, you know, bigger context of the universe with the smaller context of what people on earth know about, uh, about that struggle through their religion. I I just, I love, I love the fact that, that it, it just puts it all out there in one, one big, one big mix instead of saying, no, 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 we can't talk about that. We don't, you know, we don't mention Jesus. We can't talk about him or don't mention science. We can't talk about it because yeah. that's inf- they're both infuriating. Well, it's like Jimmy.
3: when when I was little my mom would ask, you know, what religion do you think the murrays are? And I I never had a good answer for it because yeah, I mean if if they are any religion in particular, they're Christian because they're you know, they're talking mm-hmm. about the bible, they're talking about the quotes from the bible and guardian angels and all that kind of thing. But she doesn't really specify she doesn't go beyond that. and I kind of liked that so that you know if you grew up Catholic or you grew up Episcopalian or you grew up you know whatever variety you could identify with them and maybe more so at in the period at you know when it was written. but you know you you could see yourself in their situation a little bit maybe just because.
1: yeah, garden I, I always viewed it as sort of garden variety mid-20th century American religion. Right. right.
2: American Protestantism. Right. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And they were, you know, it's like, sure, people know about that. And maybe they only go to church on Easter Sunday, or maybe they, they don't go to church very much, but they send their kids to Sunday school, which is what happened with me. My parents mm-hmm. didn't go to church, but I went to Sunday school for a while. I don't get that, but that was what <laughs> that was what it was. And uh, and sang in the choir. Uh, okay. <laughs> See, my, um, my mother wouldn't let me go
3: to Sunday school or, or Catholic school, because she she was like, "That'll destroy your faith." I went, "Oh, okay."
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh 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 no, nothing. Yeah, yep. and now it's talking yep. religion with a bunch of nerds here yep. on the incomparable. Um, <laughs> no, I was thinking that they're they're probably Unitarian. That was my guess.
1: Mm. Sure. Well, they are scientists.
2: Also, what I love about this book is all the cultural signifiers that she does drop later as you're going through school, and you finally do encounter Hamlet in the wild for the first time, and then in, and Fortinbras comes up. Boom, Boom, the penny drops for you because <laughs> yeah. like oh that's why they named the dog Fortinbras or, or something and um similar to oh god I can't even think of half the culture half of the cultural name checks that, that go on that the dog's name has always stood out for me just because yeah. you know who in the world names their dog Fortinbras
1: <laughs> well some really you know I- mm-hmm. I- iconoclastic scientist types yeah. Yeah. with their bohemian ways and their lab in the back bedroom and they're they're in the garage or whatever it is and i don't yeah. know isn't that isn't that almost like a fantasy uh view of like the ultimate super cool science family it right it's weirdly
2: optimistic <laughs> and i'm kind of surprised and again i'm kind of surprised the book came out in 62 because it predates betty Friedan, and it also hmm. goes to show that Madeline angle had no exposure to actual working scientists because um <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, because, oh, yeah. okay. First of all, and, and I say this as somebody who spent all four years of her undergrad firing up a Bunsen burner every day for different cl- for, in, in different labs. Um, if you're doing the type of science Mrs. Murray was doing, the kind of equipment you need, you can't just, um, you know, go down to your local hardware store and, and then, oh, and, 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 and jerry-rig that together. It could be
1: her husband's. Uh, equipment that he got from the government but it's still he's a it,
2: physicist she's a biologist yeah. she later wins the oh, Nobel Prize right. for mitochondrial you're work. Right, it's um, real
1: oh yes well, the mitochondria <laughs> I do I do remember that yes
2: you know it's 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 basically this fantasy and I also wonder how much of that is Langle's is a product of, of her time where where oh it's okay for Mrs. Murray to have a, an identity that fulfills her but the important thing is that she's still running the home however idiosyncratically
1: and she's still cooking she's still making dinner, ironically now. enough even she's making dinner and in college, I actually put a Bunsen
2: burner cookbook based on because because when I got to college, that was one of the first things I asked my TA was, "Do you guys ever cook on Bunsen burners?" I grew up reading this book where they always cooked on Bunsen burners, <laughs> and he's like, "No, but we can try," and so we did. Wow, <laughs> that,
1: that's yeah, yeah. Y- you know, it is it is funny that her out there with her things because it is sort of like, mm-hmm. "Honey, I'm doing science out here." Like, it's yes. not. What do you what what kind of science are you doing? Scientific kinds involving burners
2: it has science in the name they're science science.
1: (laughs) all right also making stew yes yeah. Try
2: not to mix up my stew with my science <laughs> and my liverwurst and cream cheese sandwiches. Oh my god!
1: Any other thoughts you guys have about the the religious aspects of it? I, I mean, it is intertwined with this whole thread about individualism that that we see early on with uh, with uh, uh, Meg and Charles Wallace sort of being ostracized and trying to assert their you know be yourself and be proud of who you are. Which is a you know it's a big thing that I I loved in this book because that that was definitely uh, something that I felt in in my. Childhood, mm-hmm. and then at the end, when they go to Kamazots, and they've got the uh, this entire society that's basically been turned into a hive mind, a group mind, uh, with this thing called it, which is, mm-hmm. it turns out, just as described in the book and depicted in the graphic novel, a big squishy brain on a table. Um, but it's representative of the the group mind, and it's a disembodied brain. There. It's communism. It's yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, right well don't
0: tell anyone it's, it's the soviet it's, Adder- a red,
1: it's a soviet it's a red it's a red brain it's a red brain right that mm. so, th- so there's Ooh. that so that's the flip side of it is the is yeah. the this is a place where everybody conforms and everybody is exactly the same and it's individualism and like i said i had that moment of like is this gonna get really weird and <laughs> and and ranty about you know about communism or into rugged individualism or anything like that and it never gets that well I mean there is a pulsating brain on the table and yet it, I wouldn't say it gets super weird just sort mm. of base level weird and it fits in with those other themes of individualism that don't, aren't necessarily like in in Soviet Russia brilliant girl daughter of scientist will sit at her desk right it's not like mm. that's what not what they're trying to, to, to say
2: that's all about you
1: yeah. <laughs> oh yeah yes the poor kid who wants to bounce his ball and is tortured horribly oh. for it. That's that's kind of rough. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of brutal. Yeah.
4: I think the book as a whole pushes buttons on a lot of issues, but it never goes. You know, it pushes it about halfway and then takes the the hand off the thing, the uh, the button, and puts your hand on it and says, "Okay, how do you feel about this?" Mm-hmm. and it it puts a lot of the big questions and a lot of the thoughts um, regarding it and regarding religion and regarding how science flavors the book into the reader's
2: hands, or at least it feels like that
4: to me.
1: I think you're right.
2: Um I like it. She has extraordinary respect for her reader's intelligence that way. Mm-hmm. And when you're a child, that's what you want is for for an author not to talk down to you.
3: When and one of the things I found really interesting this time through was that, you know, again, going back to the religion a little bit, is that it's the place where everybody knows and believes the same thing, and does the same thing, and acts the same way, and that's what's wrong. It's like, yes, ah, that's really interesting.
1: The pulsating brain is is it's so so. Hope Larson does this graphic novel. Have have you all looked at the graphic novel? Oh yeah, oh, yeah.
2: I bought it and mm-hmm. read it this yeah? weekend. Okay
1: you know i i really liked it i really enjoyed mm-hmm. reading it having only vague memories of the book too um because i got to play the game of like is this real Did it wasn't really like this and then reading the book and oh yeah it's 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 so amazingly faithful and it helps that the the original novel is like 200 pages long in the paperback that i've gotten that's with kind of like some spacing and big type and so it turns into this graphic novel that is so faithful in some ways because it's, you know, it's 390 pages. But most, you know, essentially all the dialogue that's in the book is in the graphic novel. And and even stuff like the pulsating brain on a table, that's actually what is in the book there is it is a big quivering brain communist thank you lisa brain
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah but i i i was really impressed i i um i know uh, the fear of a lot of people in 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 taking something that's a beloved uh childhood book and doing an adaptation like this is that you're gonna overwrite your memories of your sort of mental images and, um, for whatever reason, you know, when I read it, 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 the stuff that I remembered from reading the book, I was just nodding and going, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's about right. Yeah.
4: Her style yeah. is so unique in a way that it, it lets it, it augments your, your viewing experience. I said that, um, earlier in the podcast, but reading through the graphic novel, um, the way that she illustrates and the way that she carries you through the story, uh, is almost a little bit dreamlike. Like all of her uh her brush dry- I'm I'm going really technical here um mm-hmm. the the way that she illustrated this book is very freeform and very flowing and in a certain way it feels very dreamlike and it feel it doesn't it doesn't overwrite the memories that I have of the book and it doesn't overwrite the the way I picture characters and the way that no. I picture you know be, supreme beings and and aliens and planets um but it's a wonderful it's almost like a viewing portal into the, here is this universe of a wrinkle in time. Here is how this person sees a wrinkle in time. And like the book, you can find places where you go, Oh, yeah, I, this is totally what I saw, or this is different than what I saw, but still not wrong. It's, you know, it's traveling different timelines.
2: I have never seen such a painfully accurate depiction of adolescence as with the way Meg Murray is, is, is drawn through this entire book. Every line. In every frame that she's in, you can just feel the the jangling of her nerves and the whirling of her emotions and the confusion and fear and uncertainty. And the whole book, to me, has that same feel to it, which I think is perfect for for the underlying message and the the heroine's journey, as it were.
1: You know, it's it's funny, the... um... In reading the book, especially when you're a kid reading the book, you're not really sure about the ages, and 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 it, for me, it was harder to picture them. And and reading in the graphic novel, one one of the things I really liked about it is not only is it very clear, sort of like the age differences, and mm-hmm. she's she's the you know she is a a, a you know just in adolescence, yeah. Um, but what I love about it is in the book, it describes her. Well, it, it's not just a description. It's her interaction with her mother where her mother, they say, oh, you know, her mother is beautiful. And um, and, you know, whereas Meg is plain and awful. And her mom says something like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this, I, w- I looked like you did when I was your age. And and you should, you know, just just wait. Mm-hmm. And it's tough. Adolescence is tough. And all your all your parts of your body and your face are growing at different rates and it's all out of sync, but it'll all work out. And one of the nice things about the way that hope Larson draws Meg in this book is that at times she looks incredibly awkward and adolescent. Yes. Yeah. And then at other times you're like, Oh yeah, I can, I can see she is going to, she is going to be beautiful. Like her mother She's growing. into. She's her. just yeah. not, you know, it's just kind of here and there and shifting around, which is exactly what it's like. Yeah.
2: Well, there's this really nice passage in the book itself where, um, They talk about, you know, Meg had tried to blow off some steam at recess by roughhousing, and the girls in her grade were like, we don't do that anymore because we're no longer children. And then a few paragraphs later, it mentions that when her hair was still in the braids that she had worn through grammar school, it was fine, but now that she had cut it to fit in with the rest of her high school kids, she could never get her hair right, and it stuck out all over the place. And it was just such a perfect metaphor for she was good at being a child because she didn't care then about how different she was. But she's terrible at being an adolescent because nothing fits, and the art is exquisite. The, the, the way all of the panels with and Meg are drawn, you just feel very conscious of somebody who who goes from place to place, not feeling like she quite fits. She, she quite fits in, and, and how she's going to deal with that. Um, I don't find the. I didn't find the book particularly beautiful on the first read through because it was making me feel antsy and uncomfortable. And it wasn't until I figured out that the book was doing a really good job of, of channeling, of, of creating a visual representation of adolescence. Once I figured out that's why I'm, I'm, I'm on edge, I could sink into it a little bit more and step back from it a bit. Um, and, and begin to appreciate the ways in which, I mean, Larson's got beautiful command over the way she could, she, uh, she draws people, especially with the, the graceful lines of their hands or the way that they hold themselves in relation to other people. But it took me a couple tries to to, to get through it.
1: Well, the, one of her thankless tasks is that she also has to render the uh, the aliens, the uh, oh, yeah. creatures, and that's you know that's where your um you know your imagination is pitted against reality because mm-hmm. you could you know it turns out that you know Hope Larson is going after yeah. going off of the very specific descriptions in the book but you know as a reader you can discard and what whatever you don't want to take and imagine Mm -hmm. whoever you like and she needs to be a little more faithful and i thought you know, there there are moments like with the um, the ant beast.
2: I've always thought of ant beast more as a collection of really nice smells. It was weird to see her depicted physically,
1: <laughs> but it is accurate that it's these yeah. weird yeah. kind of like multi armed, multi fingered creatures with mm-hmm. kind of like indentations in their heads, but not actual. Uh, yeah. you know, it was interesting and and weird, but I think faithful. It turns out the mm-hmm. one that the one that really guts me is again we're back to our our centaur rainbow uh, angel people. Um, And that one is really bizarre, but it's also completely accurate that that that's the way it's described. And it's just kind of funny that that is weirder in the graphic novel, I think, than in the book, because you just have to accept that, yes, it is going to be a big centaur rainbow person. And uh, but it's, it's beautiful. It's well done. It's just weird. And it just—it struck me that that you know what what you can just discount when you're as a reader. You're like, man, I don't like that. I'm not going to even think about that. I'm going to cast somebody else in that part. And in the graphic novel, Hope Larson's doing the casting, and we have to follow mm-hmm. along. And she did a great job, mm-hmm. but it, you know she, you know she she has to make those creative decisions. We it, basically taking Madeline uh cues. Oh yeah.
3: No, absolutely. One of the things I loved was you know I I I come at it looking at. Well, how would I adapt it? Because I've done that. Yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's really interesting how, even in the very beginning, she she doesn't do exactly the, the same opening. All the details are there, but she intercuts them and weaves them together differently and does it very economically. It's It's very much a show-don't-tell kind of thing. And so, in just a few panels, we have almost that entire first chapter... And it's all there and it's in a slightly different order. And, and going through the whole graphic novel, then it's like, I, I, I was just fascinated by the choices she was making and what to show when and in which order and and how it worked. I mean, a huge amount of care. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
3: Taken with it. Because, I mean, it's just it's been adapted into a play and an opera and a miniseries that was turned into a bad movie. Because it was apparently a bad miniseries, um, huh. and at at the time, uh, Madeline Lengel was interviewed, and they they asked her, uh, "Did it meet your expectations?" And she said, "Yes, I expected it to be bad, and it was." <laughs> so go Disney.
2: I will. I've never watched any of the adaptations, no. and I don't. Thi- yeah. I don't think I ever yeah. will. There is
4: only one good *Wrinkle in Time* adaptation. It is 90 seconds long, and it was made, I think, last year or the year before, um, as part of the 90-second Newbery video contest. And it is—it's basically a bunch of child, just a bunch of kids uh, who seem to be part of the same family. acting out wrinkle in Time in very sweeted fashion and it's beautiful. Oh,
0: oh my gosh, oh. I need to see
1: it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I'll pass
4: I'll pass down right. the link. It's we'll put, it's we'll gorgeous. We'll put the link
1: in. Yeah, I I admit David that I was I was reading the book after having read the graphic novel. I went back to the book and I was thinking how would you make this into a into a TV series <gasps> or a or a TV movie or a movie? And and uh you know, I think it could it could be done and oh, done yeah. well but uh, i wouldn't lay odds on it right but i think it could i think it could I would be done do it as well as an
2: animated one rather than uh
1: well really? yeah, I mean you could you could absolutely yeah. do that, but I was you thinking do it about it's like, style. you know, it's not unreasonable that the the there are some the aliens are a little bit weird, but these days you can you can mm-hmm. kind of do anything, but so much of it is about about the kids and when they get to Camazotz it's just a town, you know, yeah. it's not that that is something about this that's as a, a sci-fi reader that's convenient. Everybody speaks everybody understands everybody else. Uh, you know, the the, the they go to this far-off planet of Camazotz and it's it's just a town. On a planet, like, <laughs> you know, presumably they have... I mean, there's kid with bouncing a ball. I mean... They're not they're they're people, right? They're not aliens or anything. They're just kind of other people. So you know, it's 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 outer spaceical when it needs to be, and it's of course, the
2: Southern California suburb,
1: and it's just a parable when it needs to be. Yeah. You know, th- which is fine. I I don't mind. It's it's actually kind of fun. I was I, I actually was thinking about Doctor Who for a little bit while I was reading mm-hmm. this because, um, it struck me as being very similar in the sense to creations from the early sixties, in the sense that that the um the details the scientific details of it weren't really the point and so they didn't matter right and that it was really about the 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 gestalt of the you know it's just sort of like look it's a story <laughs> go with it. it it doesn't stop don't stop to ask me about why this town has and this planet have humans on it when the other places have aliens just it's you know it's not the point of the story and i felt like that with this too which i I like i know it drives some particular kinds of sci-fi fans crazy because they really want it to be like completely scientifically explainable and accurate and all that but it's you know it's it's not it's not meant to be and i was fine with it but i had that moment of like sure there are rainbow centaurs okay <laughs> let's sure there's the smell the the furry smell people who can't see anything all right, that's cool, right? I don't need to think about how they evolved to that. I just, it's fine. And actually, I really love that. We didn't mention that, but Aunt Beast and her people, they can't see. Mm -hmm. So Meg has to try to explain what light is to them, which is fascinating. They're like, oh, well, there's the warm part of the day and there's the cold part of the day, but I don't know what you're talking about, about light. And she has that realization like, wow, they I thought they were really sad because they can't see anything, but they've totally got like five or six more senses than I have and I'm completely clueless to them. And I thought that was a really nice um, bit of uh, of uh, thinking outside of 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 your own uh, your own perspective that uh, for a kid's book is really great.
4: It's again about the different point of views.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it comes towards the very end of the book where Meg's already been forced to confront the fact that different people have different points of view that are equally valid. And by not understand by not trying to understand them, she's making them as much of an outsider as the people who insist on making her an outsider.
0: Right.
1: If I were adapting this, I think I might take out the happy medium though. I really don't know why that is that's in a, there.
2: That's a daffy interlude. <laughs> it yeah. is. I mean it gives you a little bit of backstory. Oh, you were a star, you gave up your life, and oh Earth is awful and then and, and, <laughs> but you know oh Calvin's mom abuses him. But you know, they're, they're
1: But it's like it's weird. It's weird. It's like let's go to the happy medium. She's got a crystal ball. She's gonna tell us about our past and our future. And then and
2: she passes out and then, oh I'm really tired from watching you from showing you these things. poof <laughs> out I go. Um let well, it's actually, let's Calvin O'Keefe for a minute. Um, they really over the course of the first three books, because again, those are the, the ones that I think most of us in generation X read. Um, you know, we've established that his home life is not great. His father drinks way too much, he, he, uh, beats the kids, his mother beats the kids. He somehow manages to merge from this completely unscathed, despite these horrific details that come out in, in subsequent books. Um, where where we find out that basically his mother had to marry the first man who came along because her stepfather was was um was getting ready to to sexually assault her and and yet Calvin comes out as this incredibly well adjusted incredibly even tempered genius guy who handles his unruly who handles his unruly girlfriend and wife does that I, I I have always had really mixed feelings because it seems I, I'm not sure if if this is meant to be empowering to to felt to children who are growing up in similarly similarly dire situations, saying you know relax, you're special, you can get through this, or if this is just incredibly dismissive of how hard it is to grow up under those circumstances. Hmm. And as I get older, I find it more and more problematic.
0: Huh?
4: I don't know. You know, yeah. I mean, knowing the people that I do who have come from similar households Mm -hmm. i would say that especially being the eldest in that kind of a household you do build up a certain i don't even want to say tolerance a certain um you you have to grow up very quickly and you have to be very much the the person in charge and the person who has their stuff together because no one else does Mm -hmm. um and i i see a lot of that in calvin but I mean, I think you're absolutely right in terms of that's that is only one picture of that kind of a scenario. In
1: but in this in this book, I feel like uh, you know Calvin's role is. I mean, it's kind of interesting because they just kind of run into him. But I I feel like I mean he's there to be part of the gang and to be supportive and to be a love interest. You know, promise of a love interest mm-hmm. for Meg. But I think his number one role is to be like sort of like the twins uh but but in that he is socially capable but not yeah. like the twins In that we see with him un- and and they don't get to show this in this book that um that he really does yearn for more and that him being popular is actually kind of a prison for him yeah and i feel like that's like the really the the only not the only the most by far the most important thing that he does in this book is just to be kind of like a connection for meg of uh, mm-hmm. you know he's like her and just because he's popular doesn't mean he's happy and doesn't mean that you know he he's secretly freaky as yeah, it yeah yeah and yeah. it's just another another color in the in the in the palette yeah. of, <laughs> of of freakiness
4: well he's a grounding force in some ways, and yeah. then oh, yeah. meg becomes his grounding force in terms right. of
1: right they're holding learning hands how
3: to yeah they're tesseracting and... yeah when it, uh, you know going back to the the thought of how much setup there is. It's also, uh, you know, you sort of build this sense of comfort with the characters and with their lives so that when they're ripped out of it and thrown across the universe and everything, it's that much more dramatic
1: because we've we've gotten used to their family life now, too. That's why I love the first half of this book. It, and I wouldn't complain about the fact that it, it the, the plot is crammed into like four chapters at the end. In many ways, I mean, in many ways, it really is. It's like, really, they're going to the they're going to the planet now, and and the last couple chapters, like, wow, they're going to resolve. How are they going to resolve this? And they do. <laughs>
2: yeah, when Mister Murray finally gets ripped free and everyone's reunited, there's like three pages in their back it- on their hillside behind the house, you're like, whoa, that's kind of yep. an abrupt yeah, ending. Yeah, <laughs> but
1: I but I don't mind it because the the the, the first half is so. Great and memorable and the, the scene setting. I mean, it is very important. It, it all pays off later, but it's very important to to get that. And it's really enjoyable, too. I mean, I really enjoyed the, the length of time spent on the midnight snack during the hurricane. Yeah is ridiculous and -hmm. it's great right it's it's incredible detail charles wallace is down there meg goes downstairs he's waiting for her she figured he'd come upstairs but he's like no i knew you'd come down he's got the liverwurst and cream cheese sandwiches and the mom mom comes out and he's ready for her and then you know it, incredible levels of detail that are totally not necessary except it paints that wonderful picture of their relationships and where they're you know how they all interrelate to each other in this family and and that's for me that stuff was actually the most memorable uh 20 30 40 years later uh was that stuff and not not the pulsating brain on a table which i didn't no. remember at all the kid with the ball i remembered oh that oh, kid no. but hmm, oh
2: Scarred I once did her poster mind. of for a book for a book contest, and so I've always remembered that.
1: Meg being protective of Charles Wallace is something that I that stuck with me all that time. That yeah. she was the mm-hmm. big sister who was gonna get in fights with other kids who said mean things about her little brother.
2: That boggles now as an adult. It made sense to me because I, I beat up more than a few kids who picked on my brother. because um, <laughs> I was his older sister and <laughs> and it was well, it was my job to kill him, not anyone else's. Um, but i i went back and i realized there's like a 10 year age difference between the two of them and i thought what the hell kind of town is she living in where people are making fun of four-year-olds to to -hmm. to their to 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 a teenager's face i mean you know what 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 on earth uh (laughs) that's the same
4: kind of town where her father supposedly has disappeared to go for another woman I mean if it's a small town that that family is the talk right you know right. and they're
1: not like them they're not from there they're not like them it's probably the rest of them have probably been there and their parents yeah. were there and all that I grew up in a town like that yeah. right and and was not one of those families so I totally I totally get that um, mm. you're right it may be a little stretch to the extreme although even then that, that whole thing's like oh you know that they got that little one he's not right in the head he's oh, you know yeah
2: the phrase we the yeah. right. use in the book is that clever people often have subnormal children yeah and i and i thought this is how you can tell the book was written during the 60s and <laughs> subnormal is used as a perfectly acceptable descriptor for human beings sure. <laughs> <means>. um, <laughs> yeah well
1: in reality people wouldn't use something that polite to describe
0: no it, but, no but, no, it's I, true.
1: I, I should point out also, just because I am like this, that um, uh, Sawyer is reading A Wrinkle in Time, and a couple episodes of Lost, which also mm-hmm. feels mm-hmm. features time travel and discussion of uh, of religion and uh, other similar topics, religion and faith. And I thought I should mention that because, of course, the books that the characters on Lost read are meaningful because they're selected mm-hmm. by the producers and. And then, of course, there's time travel in that, too. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I
4: believe there was a um, an interview somewhere uh, that said that Wrinkle in Time was actually a, a weirdly big influence on Lost in some ways, yeah. which you can see. Yep, <laughs> yeah. yep,
1: I think so. Also, I'm looking at a Google image search for a Wrinkle in Time, and I found... Like eighty different covers because every edition of it, somebody's like, "Hey, let's commission an illustration." And some illustrator goes, "Flying horse, angel, people, sign me up!" And then they do these. Always (laughs) dreamed (laughs) of it. And there are so many, so many here. It's amazing, including mine, where where he's stabbed in the back with a (laughs) rainbow. Not the best piece of art.
2: I, I do like that they don't bother to show the people; they show more of the supernatural things because I think it does let children and. And adults. Um,
1: My copy's got kids riding on the back of the rainbow.
2: Oh, see, yeah, mine doesn't. Um... Although my copy of A Swiftly Tilting Planet features the teenage Charles Wallace, who's looking mighty seventies in a pair of flares and chakai tops and long <laughs> he's, hair, he's got the fur sure on the back of
3: feathered hair things. Yeah, on.
2: and he's writing like he's writing Gaudy or the Unicorn, yeah. and it is the most gloriously Carter era <laughs> picture I have ever seen in my life. It's I love that cover so much. <laughs>
0: so
1: Hope, Hope Larson is far from the first person who had to actually ad- adapt. She just had to tell the story, whereas everybody else got a, got to say, "Hey, I'll have a." I'll have a rainbow centaur flying over a tall mountain. Done. I just saw
2: this super cool. Maybe there'll be a brain. It's inspired <laughs> me.
1: <laughs> the um, yeah, that's right. I'll do that. Whereas the Wrinkle in Time graphic novel cover is the kids. Yeah, yeah. and the stars, and the stars. And 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 kind of a black hole. Well, in the middle it's a
2: beautiful. A- I really love how they do it because you've got the um. There's about two thirds of the way down the hardcover copy that I've got. There's this 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 luminescent blue band, and it goes from these these silhouettes of the children to the close up of their faces as they're reacting. Where Meg looks a little um wary, and Calvin looks openly stunned, but Charles Wallace is just kind of calmly looking around. And I love the juxtaposition mm-hmm. of. Um, their faces and postures with their, their little silhouettes. I think it does a good job of, um, demonstrating the, inter- the, 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 the short and long journeys they've had to take.
1: Does, is your cover the one that's got the, uh, that's got the centaur person flying and below there's like a brain with red eyes and a bubble. Yes.
2: Yes, that is. Mm-hmm. That's that is super kind of, creepy. Isn't it? That isn't a, it just oh but when you're in a fourth grade you're like this is the greatest yeah oh, that's yeah. super
1: scary no mine mine on google image search you have to go down like about five rows to see this yellow cover with a uh, with a rain big rainbow at the top and flowers at the bottom because they give her they give them the flowers to breathe I guess oh that's oh, okay. right they
2: do that on the planet um oh god what's was the name of the planet it starts with U um,
1: Uriel oh Uriel yeah
2: yeah, planet, yeah on Uriel yeah mm-hmm. So the one I don't like is the really 1960s ones where they're all just the nuclei of atoms. That's I, I, I've never cared for that mm. cover.
1: Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's kind of cool from an art perspective, but I I don't think I.
2: Oh, I know which cover you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Same with the rainbow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: No wings at all, just a rainbow.
2: No, no, he's he's basically. I fly you, via you, you rainbow. Have, you can hang him on a hook from that <laughs> rainbow. Mm-hmm.
3: In your sliding glass door.
1: Not accurate. Yeah, yeah oh, I actually, absolutely. you yeah. could. Well, it's actually a stained glass figure. You you put the stained glass pellets in it and yep. bake it, and then you hang yeah. it. On that's the,
2: exactly because that's yeah. what I did during the eighties mm-hmm. as well.
1: Uh-huh. Around the same time. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we're we're almost at the end of our time. But what what topics haven't we covered that you would like to discuss before we go? Well, since you brought up Lost,
3: um, <laughs> I, I want to bring up a book that won the Newbery in two thousand ten, called When You Reach Me by Rebecca Stead which she she has said point blank wrinkle in time was her main influence in, on this book and it's it's also about a young teenage girl also very similar to meg uh, in the late 70s and it also involves time travel and i won't say any more mm. but and and the character is reading wrinkle in time throughout the book and and, and you know when she finishes reading it she starts reading it again and it's a really interesting book to read in companionship to, at least the the first book, of of uh, the the time quintet. I guess it is now.
1: It is now.
3: Um, and and it you know I picked it up because it was like well I'm, I'll check it out before my kids try reading it, and I couldn't put it down. It was great, and it's one of the few books that my eleven year old uh, he does not read books where girls are the heroes. Or heroines, and he read this and went, "Damn, that's good." Uh, but he saw it as like a Doctor Who kind of thing. It's like, "Oh, it's like a Doctor Who puzzle." So I'm still yeah. working on him with Wrinkle.
1: He'll get there if you like that one. Then oh yeah,
3: maybe he'll get yeah. there. And his best friend is reading it right now too, so that helps.
1: Well, I have to say it was uh it was great. I I, I read the graphic novel, checked it out from the, my local library. Books are available for free. At the library. library. This episode brought to you by the library. (laughs) <laughs> um and uh and then of course i had my wife's copy battered copy which is which is it was fated that we were going to be together because we have the same edition exactly oh. uh <laughs> with the rainbow uh and flowers <laughs> and uh it was so much fun to to revisit this because all i did have were these misty watercolored memories of of the way i was <laughs> uh, and i was really afraid that i was gonna go back to the book and 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 um be really disappointed because there's so many things you revisit from childhood that are disappointing in hindsight that, that as an adult you read it and you're like, Oh, this isn't that good. And I gotta say, I, I really liked it. And I, I, I thought, I thought, well, my kids should read this. This is, this is good. This is actually, Mm -hmm. it's sci-fi, but it's gentle and it's got these interesting other aspects to it. Uh, and it's, and it's, uh, you know, the characters are really good. And I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't have enough nostalgia for it to just be a nostalgia trip. I really was taking a chance of invalidating my fond memories of it. And uh I, it didn't I, I was very happy with it. And then the graphic novel is fantastic too. So I, I you know, for me this was a great uh uh visit back to this this material that I hadn't you know experienced since 1980. Uh how about you guys?
2: I love this book so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting know. that from you. Yeah, no, and, and the thing is, is it's it's I, I pulled it out of my daughter's bookcase before I put her down to bed tonight, and um, I think, honestly, I'm just going to keep it in her bookcase along with the graphic novel and let her discover it on her mm-hmm. own, because, well, I don't want to push the books that I love down her throat, because I don't want, I don't want her to have a complicated, you know, like, oh, mom likes this, you know, or, or to feel like she has to like it because I like it, um, So I think one of the hardest things I'm going to have to do in terms of culturally indoctrinating my kid is just keep my hands, keep keep my hands back and (laughs) let her discover this herself. Yep. I I still, I think I've read A Wrinkle in Time six, seven times maybe over the course of the last uh, thirty years, and I still find something new every time I read it. And like Jason said, sometimes when you go back to the the, the books of your youth, you go back and you read them, and you're like, "Holy cow! How did I not notice that?" Or, "Oh my god!" Like, um, I yeah. went back and recently we read the Chronicles of Narnia because again, I have those in my daughter's bookcase waiting for her, and um, I got to the last battle, animal. Wow, those those means are holy Moses. If I were a if I were a Muslim, I'd be furious.
1: <laughs> um, yeah
0: yeah or,
2: <laughs> yes or um similarly i have girlfriends who are reading little house in the, the the little house in the oh, books man. with their daughters and they're like those books are incredibly problematic and i'm like oh how so and i went back and oh now i see how so um they are but <laughs> uh, yeah and i don't know if it's because my love for this book is all is is is, is incredibly irrational and still tied into the 10 year old who read it
1: i'm just i'm tell i'm here to tell you it's not Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I am here to validate your choices, Lisa.
2: There are things I can see that are basically relics of, of the early sixty of the time where where she wrote it. You know, a lot of the language that she's choosing. Sure, um, the
1: tramp is the one that gets me. It's like you got <laughs> you got to update that because nobody nobody's going to be talking about the tramp. There's a tramp that was seen around town.
2: Yes, yes. yes. What? No, they're no longer huh? tramps. They're homeless people. They're yeah, homeless um, people. Yes. Or um, when they refer to Charles Wallace as a moron affectionately, I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, maybe be-. not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um. So, so I find some of the, the 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 cultural artifacts to be interesting, but oh my gosh, every time I read this book, I'm I'm always glad that I did. I, I don't have that same cringy oh or or oh my gosh, it's it's you know wow, I had no idea this was you know racist or or what <laughs> yeah. have you. Um, <laughs> of course, I should point out here that it's easy to sidestep the um the 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 multicultural questions in this book because uh it's a fairly homogenous group of of, of people who do the time travel. And even when they run into other cultures, it's all incredibly respectful. And, and uh, that said, I would love to see how the Murray family does negotiate in the streets of New York City in the late 1960s. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, I just, I, like I said, this is probably in my top five books of all time. So uh, it's a little difficult for me to be able to apply critical faculties to it because I suspect I have none where this book is concerned. <laughs> well,
1: from, from, my, from my perspective, it passes yeah. what I like to call the Scooby-Doo test. Mm -hmm. which is because Scooby-Doo is the thing that I watched a lot. And then I saw an episode and I thought, Oh my God, it's terrible and and incomprehensible, (laughs) poorly animated Mm. and poorly written and awful. Right. And so it's like, don't, don't revisit your past things. But this one held up for me, David. What about you? Yeah. It's, it's one of those books that, you
3: know, when there are a couple of books and films and things that just bring back my mother. Right. And, and, you know, even just like passages or quotes or something. And, you know, when I find myself writing something that either she, she might have written or, or that she would have loved, you know, it just sort of hits me like a ton of bricks. And this is one of those books. And so again, you know, I don't know how much critical faculty I have for it either, <laughs> but, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, picking up the graphic novel, I just pounded through it. I mean, it, I didn't put it down. Oh yeah. Me um, either. and then, you know, picking up the, the book itself. Um, same thing. And and so yeah, I, I, I think I think it works beyond my own attachment to it. Um and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what my kids do with it. If they do with it.
2: I, I- planning on are, are you hoping that they'll just pick it up on their own one day or are you going to say hey I really like this you might too or? well
3: you know I being a writer and being married to a librarian our house is like pretty mm. much just books right and uh, brought, to yeah. <laughs> brought to you by libraries brought to you by libraries
1: another sponsor message right there
3: <laughs> all of our children brought to you by librarians and um, yes it's tr- <laughs> yours and mine both yeah <laughs> and and so you know there are books that we just have around and, and I've I've told told them you know you can read anything you want in this house. You know, if it's if it's not necessarily a kid's book, we'll talk about it. But, you know, there's mm-hmm. nothing off limits because that's how I grew up, too. But, yeah, I mean, there, there are books that we just sort of leave around and they'll pick up and they'll find interesting or there are books that they'll hear about in school and go, oh, wait, I have that at home. And uh, but then there are other books that they'll actually say, you know, what is this? Why is this here? You know, so when they see all the Harry Potter books on the shelf and then wrinkle in time, what does that mean? and mm-hmm. i think i think the first time our younger son saw it his immediate reaction was doctor who it was like that's a doctor who title he was like well no not not exactly but then you know I, you know i was telling telling them you know this was one of grandma's favorite books and they went oh and that's that's sort of like that shortcut trigger to oh i need to read that then cuz grandma thought it was cool um mm-hmm. Because, you know, they they didn't get to know her as long as I did, obviously, but they still want that connection to her. It's like, oh, okay, this will help solve questions that I might have about her and uh, and how they what what she did to make my dad the way he is. Uh, No, 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 no. But um, but yeah, for the most part, we just sort of let them discover and uh, it's 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 fun to watch them go, wait, you read this? Well, it's in my house, son. Yes, I read it at some point.
1: Yeah, I, I think I may be having enjoyed it now. I may be a little more active in suggesting that my daughter read it, and then my son, I might actually suggest he look at the graphic novel because he tears through graphic novels too. Mm-hmm. Ren, how about you? How does it? Uh, how does it hold up upon revisiting?
4: Wonderfully. Um, I'm. I mean, it's probably no surprise the um, the graphic novel has been either a christmas gift to friends or a you know if i if i have somebody who needs a christmas gift they are getting a copy of the graphic novel <laughs> <laughs> it's basically been my way of you've never read wrinkle in time here Try
0: this. take
2: this Ooh. yes You'll like it, I promise. <laughs> um, one of us, one of
0: us. Would you
1: like to sign up for my newsletter? Why, why are you waving Would your hand Would you in like my to face? throw
4: a ball in tandem
2: for a long That's while? Yes. <laughs> you can skip rope.
1: <laughs> Would you enjoy this lovely, d- tasty turkey dinner, dinner.
2: Mm, with gravy and
0: trimmings? Mm.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, it it stands up wonderfully. I. I really love this story. I love her writing. There are so few authors that I can think of that immediately spring to mind where there are 400 page books, there you know 200 page books are just 200 pages of poetry and 200 pages of imagery and Ray Bradbury is one and mm. Madeleine L'Engle is another and I I mean the her her books are one of I I did not bring a lot of books from Los Angeles when I moved uh, across the country back to Boston. Uh, I've still had them all in a box waiting to be shipped. But it probably says something that her books, my Ray Bradbury books, and my Diana Wynne-Jones books are the the ones sitting on my nightstand right
1: now. <laughs> well, this has been uh, a fantastic uh, change of pace, I think, for The Incomparable, too, to do this sort of combination of a, of a, a classic uh Uh, book from our childhood and a a modern graphic novel retelling which has been a lot of fun to to revisit and we were four for four in not being disappointed by revisiting it which is also a good sign to not trample on those wonderful childhood memories but have them reaffirmed so yay for us Um, until the next yay until the next uh, edition of the incomparable Um, I'd like to thank my guests for being on this journey with me. Lisa Schmeiser, great to have you as always. This was so much fun. Thank you. It really was. Serenity Caldwell, thank you too.
4: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
1: And David Laura, it was great to have you on an actual episode. It was great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming. And I'm Jason Snell, your host, as always. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. The cruelty of the Information Technology Department.
2: Save it for the podcast. Yeah,
1: you're right. You're right. <laughs> you're right. So, so David, David's here. He's going to be on I a real know. episode. I'm I,
2: so excited by this. Vice versa. Yes, this is great. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, it's,
3: it's cool because it's it's a, a. I mean, just the whole series was one of my mother's favorite series. I mean, she no, was a don't, theologian. Duh, you might I, want. To, no, no, no. I'm just. I'm just. I'll. I'll. You know. All right. But but it was just sort of like. It's been so long since I read any of them. Yeah. You know, so it was nice to come back and be like,
2: oh, yeah, I remember that. hmm. Oh, my gosh. So, no, I, although, I have I have very it, strong I, feelings about this book. It's like it's in my personal canon. So. Uh,
3: oh, yeah. Yeah. I, now, I still haven't read the ones that she wrote after Swiftly Tilting Planet."
2: No, because um, I, under- I understand now they're up to uh, five books, because there's Some, um, A like Suitable that, yeah. Time and um, Many Waters, I believe, yeah, the other
1: two. It says in the, uh, An Acceptable Time and Many Waters, it says in the, about the author. Mm-hmm. So I guess she did write a couple more. Okay. And and then the
3: other thing that popped into my head when I was reading it this time was it, it made me think of uh, Star Trek five, with the whole, I need my pain. Pain is who I am. And, you know, and, and the individuality. What
1: does God I mean. need with a starship, David? Yes, God I know. Need not with not a in starship. front of the Klingons. <laughs> that, is not a, well, that is not a good movie. That's <laughs> no, I'm just, God. just oh, saying.
2: fan dance. Oh
0: yeah. not, God.
1: A, not, a, not a good. Only, only Star Trek movie I've ever seen one time. And I saw it, sadly, I saw it in the movie theater on the day it came out. Although, <gasps> oh, although to my, my credit, my same here. I saw it. I brought a girl with me. Ooh. Which earned me the impression of the guy sitting, he the respect of the guy sitting next to me who brought his reference material, all of his Star Trek reference material, <laughs> with him. <laughs> to the theater. You must have been a wonderful date, Jason. So I, wow. well, I mean, by contrast, I was like. You like. I, I, uh, Casanova. I, I don't know. Named Johnny Awesome is who I was, you in were contrast. Bond, you
2: like yourself, James, was James Bond, basically. Essentially, I was James
1: Bond. How did we get here? Okay. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. That this, but, now we don't but, have to do an episode about Star Trek Five. So thank no. you. <laughs> there, there you go. Um, <laughs>
0: never. Cut to never, Scotty never. hitting
1: his head on a beam. Anyway.
0: Oh my god. I gotta go climb to do Half now? Dome now.
1: Um, I don't know. How, I don't know how we got here. Um,
2: have we had the Ray Bradbury? We've done so many no. comparables that we no yeah, no, no Ray Bradbury need, yet because no. we need Not to yet. talk about Ray but Bradbury since he was. We do. Uh, Yep. No, yeah. the first time I ever cried over a book, it was a Ray Bradbury book. So uh,
1: We'll get there. We'll get oh, there. God,
2: I'll end, up, I'll end up crying on that episode of <laughs> Incomparable, too. It's terrible.
3: <laughs> I, I always had that box of books that, you know, especially when I was moving around the country for a year, it was just the car box. I mean, there were I had boxes mm-hmm. in my parents' garage for about 15 years beyond when I left. But I always had that box of books that traveled with me no matter where I went. And and so it'd be, you know, Wrinkle in Time and C.S. Lewis and Harlan Ooh. Ellison and Ooh. uh Ray Bradbury and Robertson Davies and mm. oh. I don't have a car box anymore. I have a house.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no. Houses are useful for those yeah, keep, things. Yeah, to
1: keep your books in. Absolutely. Yes.
2: And then and our kids will finally Oh, I have this old Kindle that I keep stuffed with all the books I downloaded. <laughs> That's, as <a>
1: right. Child. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> right. What with kids? Scott McNulty says that now.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and our friends who are still childlike. <laughs> I tease. I tease. Aww. I tease. Oh my god, do no I tease? So hmm. we just love well, the Kindles lying <laughs> around
3: the house, and the kids pick them up one by one.
2: Yeah, that's oh. actually that. Was, that was something I wanted to ask you about. Was um, I did I did more of my readings as a kid by just kind of wandering by and casually sweeping my mother's books, and and reading things and there were things I shouldn't have read at the time, but I I think serendipitous reading is one of the best ways for, for, for kids to discover what they like without having somebody explicitly steer them towards books. And I thought, gosh, I've, I've I've switched to digital reading for so many of the things that I really love. How can I engender serendipitous reading in my own, in my own house? If I'm not, if, if every, if I'm not leaving physical media laying around. So this is is something I think about a lot, actually.
4: My feeling is always, um, I buy a lot of books recently, like at, since I got the iPhone um, and since the iBook store came out and since Kindle came out, I just I read a lot digitally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but any book that I know I will want to read more than once or that mm-hmm. I know I will want to lend, I buy in hardcover. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way to basically say, OK, there are the books that I definitely want to read once and then there are the books that I know are going to touch me for a while. Like, um, Ooh. the night circus was one of those where I read it through once on my iPhone's Kindle app. And then immediately after I finished reading, reading it, I was like, okay, I have to go out and buy the hardcover oh, yeah. right now.
1: Yeah. I, I'm, I'm mostly buying graphic novels now, but this is not the topic of this episode. So <laughs> no. we should do no. an accidental book podcast is happening now. <laughs> no, we'll we'll yeah. get, we'll get, we'll get back to it. But, um, it's true. What what is the my kids are, are well my kids do have lots of lots of paper books though it's mostly me now that that has the electronic mm-hmm. books but who knows how that'll change. Mm.
2: Yeah. You need to do this more with us, David.
1: I would love to. Agreed. No, get back to work on writing the sequel to the fog or something. Oh yeah, or oh. actual work. Yes. that you get paid for. The- <laughs> something like that. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler insert. Spoiler. All right. Yes. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Traditionally, like the guests don't say goodbye there, but that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Traditionally. I just had the <laughs> bye-bye bye. now. <laughs> bye now. Y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Oh. <laughs> so... In, it's completely off topic in star tours the, re- <laughs> the new star tours they have yeah. Allison Janney as the robot um, yes
1: yes they do and s- what? Putty, oh. for some too Patrick and Warburton Patrick Warburton yes. is in really? is in there too have- yeah
4: yes. oh wow mm-hmm. it's delightful well Trixie needs to go to Disneyland at some point we we're um, going to wait until she can
2: go under her own power cuz i don't want to yeah, yeah don't, don't out be out the don't the be the person yeah. with the yeah. stroller
4: but yeah, so every time I leave a room now or every time I hang up on a conversation,
2: I do the "bye bye in it. The Alice uh-huh. it just comes out. It's, it's. I have no control. <laughs> she would be great for the Wrinkle in Time movie in my head, I think.
1: Hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Interesting.
2: Yeah, I think she'd be See, great. See,
1: you can't go more than about an hour with Lisa and there's fantasy casting happening. The, the t- title suggestions were, essentially, I was James Bond. That's referring to me at the Star Trek V screening, by the way. So yes, I voted yes. for that one. <laughs> Brought to you by libraries, cultured- culturally indoctrinating my kid, flying horse angel people. Sign me up. That's kind of long.
0: <laughs> I, I
1: like flying horse angel people. Se- secretly yeah. freaky, outer <laughs> Spacical, which I did say, yes. outer <laughs> space pulsating brain on the table, yes, commie mm-hmm. brain scientific kinds of science (laughs) honey i'm doing science no exposure to actual working scientists lisa (laughs) talking religion with a bunch of nerds (laughs) don't mention jesus and my favorite of course stabbed in the back by a rainbow anyway
2: <laughs> i think stabbed in the back by a rainbow is it's pretty great <laughs> there's
1: some good ones there yeah but that's just the one stupid cover that i have it's not even all the other covers <laughs> flying horse angel people oh sure oh
2: that cover is so 80s
1: by the um, way i should say it it, it is i although it's a, well it's a 79 i think yeah, it's 70 kind of that 78 edition, edition.
2: That, that, that early 80s aesthetic that goes along with reading rainbow and 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 321 contact mm. But, yeah. oh. All right. <laughs> okay. Thanks, I can, everybody. I have a freelance piece. I got to work yes. on Talk to you okay. later. Goodbye. Right. Bye. Bye. It is late.
0: Good night. Yes. Good night. Bye.